It is Thursday, the 24th of November 2016. I am Robin Yellow and this is Tectasm episode 37, Crazy Smog Sucker. And with me again, because nobody else was available, is the gorgeous James Woodall. Pretty gorgeous, thank you very much. It's been a long time. It's been a while, hasn't it? Things have been uh, been kind of crazy the yep. last couple of weeks. Pretty, pretty crazy, but glad to be back. Yes, and I'm glad to have you back. And this week, James, we're going to take a look at China's smog cleaning tower, your phone disabling your social when you take to the wheel, and boom, it's Concord 2. And we'll be judging these stories and a couple of others to see if they are a tectasm, which is a blend of tech for technology and tasm for phantasm, something existing only in a person's mind. So without further nitpicking, let's get on with the show. So on to the first story, uh, Lacey Cook in, in Habitat has written about the smog-sucking vacuum cleaner. I'm not making that up. Um, what this uh, wonderful Dutch chap has invented, um, it's uh, from Studio Roosgaard, um, effectively a cleaning tower that can remove pollution from the air. And uh, this thing has been on for a few days now, 41, and it has busily scrubbed, wait for it, 30 million cubic meters of air, which means nothing to me. So to put that How in much terms, air is there in the world, James? Well, 30 million cubic meters, I've got no idea, but 30 million cubic meters of air is the equal volume of 10 Beijing national stadiums. So it's pretty big. I mean, it's not, you know, we're talking minuscule percents of the world's air. But, I mean, still... What these uh, what these officials on the ground have said is that the air is fifty five percent cleaner than it was before. That's a that's a pretty big deal. Couldn't they just plant some trees? Um, I mean, yeah, but then it wouldn't be featured on Tectasm. That is very true. So let's take let's break this down a little bit. So you said thirty million cubic meters, which is the size of ten Beijing national stadiums. So if I took the air in the Beijing National Stadium, whatever that is, and stacked it up 10 times on top of each other. Yep. In terms of the amount of air in Beijing, you get a little blip on the surface, which could be a bit cleaner. Yeah, I mean, but uh, no, okay, it's very easy to be cynical, but it's only been going for 41 days and there is only one of them. So what what this demonstrates is that if you get like a little fleet of these, if that's the right term for the grouping of smog-sucking towers together and then combined, they arm themselves and just wipe out pollution. Boom, done, next. What is the technology behind it, does it uh, say? Um, I watched a little video on it earlier, which doesn't seem to be in this wonderful article, um, that effectively says it's a little bit like an air purifier that you have in your house. So that doesn't answer the question, but I'm sure we can easily find it out with some expert Google. So some kind of filtration system. I think so. That's basically it. But what's really interesting is what they're doing with all the particles is they're turning it into jewellery, of course. So the the kind of leftovers, if you will, from this pollution-sucking tower is going to be turned into 300 special smog-free rings. Well, what's interesting, I suppose, is that... 
you know, with these filtration systems, that they genuinely usually involve some kind of filter which has to be cleaned or washed at some point. And as you say, it's taking particles out of the air, however small, they're being trapped somewhere and they're going to be deposited somewhere, which means that this device, uh, you know, brilliant though it is and inspiring as though it is, uh, is going to be is going to require constant maintenance to get the arguably tiny amounts of pollution that it's cleaned out of the air um, out of it again. So either they've got to send somebody in there, you know, with a hammer and chisel to chip it off the filter or however it works. Uh, but in either case, I mean, it feels like um, uh, a publicity stunt to me, unless I've completely misunderstood it. Um, I think I think it's very easy to look at it like that. I mean, look, let's be realistic. What's more likely going to happen? The pollution naturally drops because people start driving electric cars in China or some crazy Dutch inventor goes off and makes one of these little devices and has a bit of PR. Well, it does say right at the bottom of the article that the smog-free tower will continue to tour China uh, and they're going to announce which city the smog-sucking tower will venture to next. So it implies to me that it's going on a bit of a tour to raise awareness. Yeah, which is it sounds like the kind of thing that should be in production. So I look forward to seeing this. Um, Maybe I'm jumping the gun a bit, but this needs to be real. I mean, because I mean, isn't there a, some terrible statistic that fifty thousand pipe people die every year in the UK through diesel fume related illnesses? Stop buying diesels, everyone. If you've got one, sell it. If you're thinking of buying it, don't. There's no need to for fuel economy. Buy a petrol car, or please buy an electric car. Just do it. So um, I'm going to say that this is definitely not a tectasm. It's amazing. I want one. Well, I don't want one personally, but. Um, I think in the strict sense of the word, tech for technology, this looks like a tech-tasm. I don't believe this this thing is as sustainable in terms of the amount of maintenance it needs. And I don't think it's nearly efficient enough to get through the kind of atmosphere that would need to be scrubbed by a system like this to make a dent in Beijing's air quality. So I I would call this one a tectasm. So I think we're split, James. Okay, okay. Well, look, before we uh, before this gets a bit heated, can we move on, please, to... Like the uh, like the air in Beijing. Yes, yes. Moving on, uh, Joe Rossignol at uh, Mac Rumors has written a really interesting article about how the uh, United States Department of Transportation's National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, mouthful, um, has proposed a new guideline to encourage smartphone manufacturers to develop a so-called driver mode. The idea being that the phone will somehow detect that it's in a car moving and, um, and tasks such as text messaging, social media content, viewing images and video not related to driving are all going to be disabled. The reason for this is because um, they're saying that driver distraction was responsible for 10% of fatal crashes in 2014, 18% of crashes causing injuries, and 16% of all traffic crashes in the US in 2014 just due to driver distraction. So, um, I mean, what they're saying is there were 385 fatal crashes that involved the use of a cell phone. I mean... You know, they, they clearly need to do something. So they're putting the onus back on the cell phone makers uh, because, hey, it's a lot easier to do that than tell people don't be stupid. 
Well, these systems actually work, uh, and it's easy to detect whether the vehicle is moving. I was involved in a, in a work capacity in doing a pilot into this a couple of years ago, and there are two systems. One which uses the onboard GPS and accelerometer in the phone to determine whether you're moving. Um, you know, uh, the signature of a car has a certain uh, the the accelerometer signature of a of, of a phone inside a car has a certain signature which can be read, um, and also the speed can be determined very accurately from from periodic GPS uh, readings. The other way to do it is to actually have the the same sensors inside a little dongle which plugs into the OBD port, which is on most cars have got, most cars less than 15 years old have actually got yeah. uh, accessible under the dashboard uh, for power primarily, but to take the power out of the car. So the car, you Bluetooth pair your phone automatically with this dongle and uh, it will disable your messaging features that way. The reason um, for doing it that way is that it saves battery. This can really drain your battery if you're constantly determining what speed you're going, what your acceleration and deceleration is, um, and this can be a, a bit of a faff. Yeah, I can see that, but um, look, the thing that makes me think twice about this is, I suppose if you're determined to play with your phone while you're driving, you're going to do it anyway, right? This isn't going to stop you. If it makes it a little bit more awkward, people will still figure it out. Um, well, I think that it's in degrees, isn't it? You're absolutely right. There's always going to be a hardcore. So in the UK, where, of course, driving while talking on your cell phone is banned, uh, people in white vans obviously didn't get the memo because nobody in a white van cares about that law. It just isn't enforced. But what it has done is made people who listen think. So this is all about, you know, this is a vaccination program. This is about getting to as many people uh, as possible. And I think mandating it. They're talking about changing the law or something to mandate phone manufacturers. Um, they're, they're not. I don't think they're saying they're changing the law as such. They're just making a recommendation, um, a federal guideline. Is a federal guideline a law? I don't. I don't know. I don't know. So, well, guideline sounds like a guideline, doesn't it? Well, it's very nice. Yes. Um, I, I think the, the 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 practical problem with this is the amount of battery that is drained when you enable this system in the trials that i did a couple admittedly a couple of years ago the the phone based system uh, was uh, not liked because it killed your battery during the day when if you're driving a lot during the day the act of just sensing this stuff killed your battery uh, but they both both systems work and they save lives well okay well good stuff let's move on well guess what james Cat Distasio in Inhabitat reported something really exciting this week, which I'm very excited about. New Concord. New Con is this Concord 2.0? It's new Concord. It's a new supersonic jet that can fly from London to New York in 3.5 hours. There's a picture rendering of it. It looks like a mini version of Concord. When you say now rendering, does that mean doesn't quite exist yet? <laughs> yes, that's correct. <laughs> Uh, now, there hasn't been, look, James, there hasn't been a supersonic pass passenger jet in service for 10 years. But aviation startup Boom Technology has unveiled what it hopes will change that. It's called the XB-1 Supersonic Demonstrator. Uh, and it will allow you to take the 15-hour flight from Los Angeles to Sydney in 6 hours, 45 minutes. Wow. Now, the plane was revealed at an event last Tuesday at uh, the Centennial Airport in Hangar 14, at Centennial Airport in Denver, Colorado. 
Um, and they are suggesting that it will take to the air sometime in late 2017. At the moment, they've got a third size, uh, one third size demonstrator. Now, it's designed to carry 44 passengers, which is obviously half less than half what Concorde was taking. Um, but the company is planning to have it in operation by 2020. So wow. not, not a long way That's into the pretty... future. Well, hang on, but okay. Okay, okay. I'm just going to say, I mean, the uh, thinking back to the Airbus A380, that was flying in trials many, many years before it was actually unveiled. Um, no, no, sorry, not unveiled, until it was released. So well, they've only got three years, three and a bit years. Yeah. So I, I think maybe Boom Technologies perhaps hasn't built a plane before. Uh, or has a very overinflated view of their own capability. Um, but he's sort of in this Kickstarter Indiegogo generation, we expect things to appear in a reasonable timescale. So I think Concorde itself was on the drawing board for, you know, 20 years, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, look, fair play to them. Really exciting. Um, yeah, I'm not so sure. Well, the... Um, I mean, it's an interesting market that they're going into, 44 passengers. Uh, now, it, it is long distance, so it will go a long way. Um, but carrying such a small number of people, it's, it's, it's an execute jet, isn't it, I, I suppose? Uh, yeah. I, and look, I can definitely see the market for that. You know, there's, um, I, I know you're not a, a fan of the whole jumping on a plane to go, go to a meeting or whatever, but there's definitely a, there's definitely a, a market for that without a doubt. Yeah, so in order to fly, just very quickly to go into this, in order to fly high, uh, sorry, fly fast, you need to go high where the air is thinner. This means that Concorde typically flew at twice the height of a, of a commercial, regular commercial uh, airliner, which meant, of course, it needed a lot more fuel to get up higher and then a lot more fuel to, to sustain that speed. And the problem I've got with that is that is inefficient. If you're flying somewhere short haul, you should go turboprop, which flies at low altitude and uses very efficient engines and propellers to get you where you want to go at a lower carbon footprint than flying at 70,000 feet at Mach 2 or whatever this plane flies at. So, so I'm anti it personally in terms of dumping unburnt hydrocarbons right into the stratosphere, which is a really bad thing to do. But if they can do, if they think they persuade enough investors that they can do it in three or four years, they'll, they'll, they will and get the funding. Um, then, you know, it's inevitable, I think, that supersonic transport will come back again because it found its niche, didn't it, at the end of its life? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and look, actually reading the article, it said it's going to be $5,000 um, for a ticket, which if you compare it to, say, a full-price uh, ticket on British Airways First Class, full price is £7,000. So what's that, $8,000 now, $9,000? So... I suppose it is actually quite competitive if you're looking at that market. And uh, I certainly know there are some industries and some executives who will gladly pay that for normal tickets. So Yeah, well, we very rarely do planes on this show. And uh, it's carbon composite materials, of course, so it's very light. So maybe there's been an advance in material science into Concorde, which will make this a goer. But I'm going to call it after you. Um, I think this is real. This is not a tectasm. Okay, I think this is a tech tasm and we'll never see it. 
Well, uh, back down to earth, Intel apparently is backing away from wearables. Did you know this, James? Uh, no, I didn't know this. Uh, interesting stuff. Well, Intel bought Basis back in 2014, and there were hopes that this acquisition would push wearables to the next level. But sadly, things did not go that way. Now, looking at Engadget, Sean Buckley reports that TechCrunch said that Intel's wearable dis division is facing massive layoffs. Now, according to TechCrunch, sources close to the company, which is code for somebody that works there, say that Intel is planning to back away from wearables and will soon lay off its staff in its new devices group. Now, do you do you uh, have you have you seen the basis peak or the I, basis? Honestly, I'd never seen that watch before in my life. I'm looking at the article now and I'm thinking, I've never... Have you seen this before? Well, I've heard of the basis peak. It was considered to be very good uh, right at the top and certainly the Intel's acquisition of them. Uh, a lot of industry watchers thought it, that it was her heralding massive investment in this area and certainly, you know, everybody was into wearables in 2014, 13. We were all interested in it. I was interested in it. I know you were interested in yeah. it. Mm. Um, but subsequent to that, actually, on the 20th of November... Um, which is four days ago, Intel issued a statement saying that Intel is in no way stepping back from the wearables business. In fact, we have several products in the works that we're very excited about, as well as prior launches that highlight our wearable technology, such as the Tag Heuer Connected Watch and recently Oakley Radar Pace Smart Eyewear. So they, that's a denial if ever I saw one. Uh, yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, they bought uh, Recon Instruments a couple of years ago. Is that what powers the Oakley? Um, Oakley. You know, that's the, the Recon Jet, isn't it? Yeah, that's but I wonder, if, I wonder if it's Recon who are behind the Oakley. Oh, could be. Yeah, white-labeled. Yeah, very, very could, could well be, actually. Radar well Pace. Be. We just haven't got enough information. Yeah, I'm I'm a firm believer in wearables, as you as you know. I don't see the consumer market completely. I'm more of an enterprisey kind of guy. That's definitely a phrase. So, uh, I don't know. I think the 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 jury's out. I mean, Apple keep on uh, rumored that the watch isn't quite doing as well as they would have hoped. So, who knows? Yeah, it's Recon is an Intel company. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm wondering if it was Recon behind the. Yeah, it's got to be. It looks Recon make glasses. Oakley is the same product. Yeah, yeah Oakley is obviously the brand they've made well, together with. Them. I don't know. I think the jury's out for me on consumers and wearables. And Engadget is primarily a consumer-focused um, company uh, news outlet. I think Enterprise is definitely here to stay for wearables. Yeah, agreed, agreed. So uh, Intel pulling out, they've issued a denial, so there's no tectasm here, is it? They're still in it. No, no. Okay, well, let's move on to something super exciting. Well, super exciting ooh, for ooh, me. Ooh, exciting. I'm super excited, can't you tell? Um, Normally it's the comedy article at the end. Yeah, well, this is not, this is, this is, this could be comedy, but it really isn't. Um, that okay. makes it weird. Now I'm intrigued. Um, the Linux Foundation, Microsoft have joined the Linux Foundation. Stop the press. Wow. Um, so I never thought I'd see that. I know. Microsoft, uh, last week at their Connect conference, or was it the week before? I'm not too sure. Um, 
they announced that they've joined the Linux Foundation as a platinum member, which means that they pay half a million dollars a year to the Linux Foundation to encourage collaboration and development and so forth. Interestingly enough, Google... Can't get any weirder than that. Well, uh, well, there's two things, really, with Google. Number one, Google's not even a platinum member of the Linux Foundation. Wow, I can't believe that, considering they have their own... Well, they have several Linux operating systems. Uh, number two, though, the the other way, Google have joined Microsoft.net Foundation. What? What is going on here? I the mean, world's gone crazy. It has gone crazy. Was it was it Steve Ballmer that said that Linux was just a blip that you know wasn't wasn't really going to go anywhere? Or yeah, well, he was certifiable. Wasn't he? <laughs> I mean, he still is. Uh, he's not died or anything. I mean, he's, I think he owns a baseball team or a football team. Or yeah, something. yeah, he does. He he does. Well, yeah, um, I don't know. I mean. But uh, but still, I mean, what an absolutely incredible week for software development. You know, you've got the biggest software company in the world openly supporting an operating system that's not their own. And I think the reason for this, and we've discussed this in the past, is Microsoft is becoming more and more of a cloud company where the platform itself is not really their choice. It's the developer's choice. It's the customer's choice. So with Microsoft supporting the Linux Foundation, they can now start making money from Linux, which they do anyway. But, you know, they can now start making a bit more money from it. Well, I think a lot of this is trickled down from Satya Nadella's uh, leadership where he said, categorically we're going to chase the users if the users are somewhere else then that's where our apps are going to go so in a way i'm i'm surprised but i'm kind of not surprised well it follows if you remember um a couple what does of it months, mean in practical terms though James? well in practical terms what it what it means is that um microsoft is committed to making linux a first-class citizen for its own platform so microsoft releases now uh, several developer tools for Linux. There's a version of Visual Studio for Linux, believe it or not. ASP.NET runs on Linux now, so you can run entire Microsoft web services on Linux. Um, as you say, they're chasing the user, the developers. But interestingly enough, one of their biggest products, SQL Server for Linux, sorry, SQL Server, is now is on Linux. We spoke about that a while ago. Yeah. The reason for that is, of course, Oracle. Oracle yeah. have pretty much got the database market sewn up on Linux operating systems. Um, and Microsoft. Well, are you sure about that? Well, they're they're, they're one of the biggest players. Okay. I mean, who who else is there? You got MySQL. That's Oracle. So, what? yes. Okay. It's MySQL they've Oracle. They've got it sewn up. Sorry. Is it's, it's MySQL Oracle? It is. I did not know that. Oh, there you go. Wow. Okay. So so you know Microsoft now by having SQL Server for Linux is chasing Oracle. So. Um, you know, and what what certainly what Peter Bright here says in Ars Technica, my, my favorite website, yep. um, that um, SQL Server on Linux is actually somewhat cheaper than Oracle. So that's yeah. going to be a- well. SQL Server is beloved by database administrators because it takes a lot of the pain out of database administration. And whereas that's really useful. I mean, I'm, Oracle. Oh, go ahead. Okay. No, I was going to say Oracle. I, I, I'm, so I'm told is considered to be the Ferrari. Uh, you know the the TVR of databases. Once you've got it tuned, it's amazing, but it requires super skill to get it running perfectly. Whereas SQL Server is more your Skoda. You know, you turn up, put the key in, and it works first time every time. Uh, but it isn't going to get you where you need to go at the speed of a Lamborghini. But interestingly enough, I um, I'm sure you're familiar with Stack Overflow, which is every developer's favorite web page. 
um, that effectively any developer, if they're confused about something, go to Stack Overflow and the answer is there. Stack Overflow runs on SQL Server. All right. Which is is incredible because most big data-heavy websites, you know, for example, um, Pinterest runs on Redis, um, you know, because there are all these super fast databases out there for very specific purposes. I was amazed when I heard that Stack Overflow runs on SQL Server. That is absolute. So, so you know, we we, we mock SQL Server. Certainly, you and I have in the past for just not being able to cope with various things. But actually, I don't think that's necessarily the case anymore. I think relational databases generally have a technical constraint. They're going to run out of horsepower at some point because of the way they work. They're kind of, you know, they came into being in a, in a former age where memory, uh, CPU were constrained um, and that you had to make efficient use through normalization these days where you just don't care. No SQL databases seem to be triumphing. Yeah, and um, and I would have agreed with you, but I spent a lot of time with uh, SQL Server recently in my day job. And uh, Microsoft have a product called Azure SQL Data Warehouse that has no limits on storage. None whatsoever. Which... Yes, I think it, I think it's speed of access. You just can't if you're processing terabytes of information. You just can't do it fast enough on a relational database. It's an architectural constraint, is is my understanding. Yeah, yeah, and I think the world is changing slowly on that. Look, NoSQL is clearly great, but but let's get back to the story. Um, what we're seeing though from Microsoft is a more open Microsoft. And there's a few other things that came out as well from, from this Connect thing as well. Um, Samsung have announced that they've ported .NET Framework to Tizen. So you can write Tizen applications in C Sharp, Microsoft's program language of Visual Studio. So with that- four users who've got a Tizen device can use it. Well, actually, okay, you laugh, but Samsung TVs are all running Tizen. Exactly. So um, that's uh, I mean, Tizen. What... Tizen has become through its trans transformation from whatever it was, Mego to I mean, it's got a long and illustrious history. Tizen has become Samsung's proprietary operating system that nobody's interested in. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. But Samsung do sell a lot of TVs. Yeah. So... True. And LG, of course, bought WebOS off HP, yes. which was. Palm OS before that, specifically to run on their TVs. Absolutely, and um, but I think what you know, Microsoft now are kind of at a point though, where if you're a software developer that knows C sharp, you can now write applications for servers, for phones, and phones includes iPhones, Androids, Windows phones. You can now write for Tizen. You can write Mac applications as well. You can write Xbox applications. You can write. Um, you can even write um, PlayStation um, games. In C sharp, such a fanboy. No, yeah, well, yeah, but you you name another company that can do that in your face. Look at that. I can't. You're oh. just better than me. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a really interesting week. Microsoft are really opening themselves up, and uh, this is definitely the new CEO talking. Um, I think Google's playing catch up, possibly by joining the .NET Foundation. Um, but uh, it's well, uh, Google, of course, has got its own long list of languages that it's developed, like Go, and then abandoned. It hasn't abandoned; it's still there. Uh, they keep coming back to Python, and I imagine they'll dabble with with .NET. .NET has become, through its open sourcing, 
anyone's game. And I think, you know, if developers prefer .NET, then great, you know, and C Sharp, and uh, then that's fine. And I think generally, um, you know, pretty much all of the companies are quite agnostic about programming languages and environments. So I'm, I'm not surprised to see this happen. Um, I just... I the uh, my only word of caution is um is it a stunt and I suppose that goes to the heart of the tectasm is this a stunt to get a headline to what extent is the commitment there to not only join the linux foundation but to enhance linux as an operating system for I the don't future think and then the ultimate really step too interested in enhancing linux i mean they have been one of the major contributors to linux interestingly enough over the past few years uh, but that's generally around virtualization for their cloud computing platforms, which makes sense. But so, Linux is how you get off the proprietary nature of Windows. Windows is a proprietary operating system. And, and you know, as it, IT becomes more and more of a commodity business, um, you want choice. You want to be able to get off. You want to be able to port your skills to different uh, target environments. So I'm, I'm all for this. Um, and all for being able to run anything on any platform, which, of course, was the original um, objective of Java. And look what happened there when Oracle acquired it. Uh, well, I think Java was doomed before Oracle had their fingers in it, but uh, <laughs> they certainly didn't help. But uh, I don't know. Is there a tectasm here? No, but it's a great story to end on. Would you Adam and Eve it? That's all there is for this week, Governor. Now you can find us at facebook.com slash techtasm. Subscribe in your favourite podcatcher. Or contact us at feedback at techtasm.com. We record randomly every week or so. Uh, so look out for next week's, next month's episode. This is me, Sir Robin Yellow. And me, Mr James Woodall. Asking the question on your behalf. Is it real or is it just a tech test?